Enterprise Management 360. Hello everyone, my name is Thomas of Enterprise Management 360, and this episode is titled, Cloudy Skies Lie Ahead. The question is, public or private? As times move on to a more mature discussion of data management and storage, questions over which places to deploy applications become essential to businesses. The benefits once promised in the public cloud are slowly turning into inconvenient costs as applications become more refined. To discuss why the private cloud may or may not be the answer, I am joined by J.R. Rivers, co-founder and chief technology officer at Cumulus Networks, an expert in the field of modern data center architectures and IoT. Welcome, J.R. It's a pleasure to have you on the program today. Thank you, Thomas. Good afternoon to you. So, J.R., let's get started. Can you tell us a bit about the growth of public cloud and how it came about? Yeah, so interestingly enough, I was kind of lucky enough to be involved and knowing a lot of the right people as public cloud was emerging. And you had two distinct perspectives that drove people there. Amazon and AWS was kind of the big first push into, you know, like super high scale public cloud. And and in their case, they had applications that needed to scale around specific holiday and purchasing seasons and they had to build out all that capacity, and they ended up with a tremendous amount of excess capacity sitting around. In order for them to develop their own applications, they did it in a cloudy sort of way. You know, they wrote applications that ran on virtual machines. They were scale-outs, and they needed load balancers and persistent storage, all those kind of primitives that become necessary when you have a public cloud. And so now they had this situation where they had infrastructure that was sitting idle, they had a set of primitives and they asked themselves, what would happen if we wrap some of that up and offered it up to the rest of the market? Would people actually take advantage of it? And people started doing it. And it was kind of goofy and kludgy to start with, but it grew over time and it became that complex web of services and infrastructure that they provide to the, to the world today. The other side of it was um, software maintenance. You know, if you look at, at Microsoft and a, or an Oracle and the suite of products that they offer up to companies, keeping all of that up to date, just looking at Exchange, it's one of the most basic examples. If you're in IT and you've been here for a while, one point in your time, you ran an Exchange server. And keeping it up to date with security and functional patches, especially if you had a fleet of Exchange servers, was always such a pain in the neck. So Microsoft looked at it and realized that they could get new features and updated functionality into the hands of their customers much faster if they hosted Exchange remotely, i.e. in the cloud, like what they're doing with Office 365, than they could with on-premises you know, installations. So those are the two great big drivers for public cloud. It was effectively using excess capacity and then being able to increase customers' benefit and success while decreasing internal costs. The interesting thing that happened along the way in both cases is the availability of data and observations around data trends ended up being as profitable as the original service. And that's actually what got Google over the top. You know, I remember when I was, was at Google, I was having lunch with Luis Barosa, who's one of the Google fellows. And I suggested to him that at some point in time, Google would sell capacity to the rest of the world. And, you know, he said it probably never happened unless they figured out some way to leverage the data that was being computed 
in order to help make their other businesses better. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened and what pulled Google into the public cloud market. Not only gave that sort of advantage to themselves as providers, but it's created this huge world of basically companies understanding that they needed to either move toward cloud solutions or be extremely limited by on-premises solutions. And so now more than ever, we have companies who are evaluating their IT strategies. So what kind of themes are you seeing emerge because of this? I mean, what we see is a reasonably crisp set of decisions that people are are making now and that the distinction and the decision tree is getting more precise, you know, every year where when you have an application or a service, you have to decide, is it something that I run remotely in public cloud? Do I, you know, buy it as a SaaS service or do I, you know, build on-premises infrastructure to run the application? And there's not an all-or-one path, but those end up being the paths that people need to take. And what drives a company to choose amongst these paths? Yeah, so inevitably, you know, some of it is scale. You know, if you have somebody that's running a web server that has very, very low volume traffic, you know, standing up private infrastructure to run a web server is, is ridiculous. You know, you can go to a host of public cloud providers, whether it's a, an AWS or a DigitalOcean or Hurricane Electric, or, or there's, there's actually a lot of them, DreamHost. These companies do this for a living, and it's really easy. They've give, given you nice web portals to stand up your website, do your editing, keep it up to, up to date and alive and persistent if it's of small scale. And so you as a company, if your business is a scale-up web application, let's use Uber as an example, massive scale-up web application, not likely to use public cloud because you need to manage your cost and be able to build your infrastructure at scale and have it effectively be adapted to your application and make sense in that context. So those are kind of the sets of decisions. And, And SaaS ends up being the interesting one right in the middle because most companies will do things like outsource their email or outsource their HR and compliance or one of the you know, most famous SaaS companies is Salesforce for you know customer relationship management. Whenever people make that decision to outsource it, they've decided that they want to buy a completely integrated service. They're not looking for infrastructure. They're looking for a business solution or a, you know, a, whole, a fully encapsulated business process to be outsourced you know, as SaaS. And in turn, those companies that, you know, built run SaaS businesses, they have to make the decision whether they use public cloud or private cloud, you know, you build their own infrastructure. In the end, everything that you do in the IT today runs on a server in a data center somewhere that somebody has to build and maintain. So that seems like a lot of responsibility. And it would probably make sense for a company seeing this from the outside looking in to go all in. So do you see any companies going all in with any of these strategies and going either 100% public or 100% private? The funny thing is people talk about hybrid cloud all the time. And when cloud was starting off, you know, and, and AWS was like a toddler and GCE had just been born, you had all these companies that were trying to figure out how to make hybrid cloud be the taking a workload and deciding whether you put it in AWS or if you put it in Google or whatever based on cost. And they were trying to do arbitrage around that. What you start to find is, you know, that's actually in the grand scheme of things irrelevant. The real emerging definition of hybrid cloud is 
when you have your business that is distributed across all these different fronts, you have one or more public cloud providers, you have one or more SaaS providers, and you may or may not have one or more pieces of private cloud infrastructure. And all of those have to tie together to make your business run, which in turn means you have to figure out, you know, where do you bridge the gap from one tool to another tool? How do you manage data security? How do you manage cost? And how do you actually operationalize and minister the infrastructure? And, and you know, what does your team look like that's able to do that? You mentioned just now, actually, SaaS companies having to deal with the dilemma of choosing. And it seems like SaaS companies end up exclusively choosing between either public or private. Does that make sense? Kind of a fair perspective that they'll, they'll have a tendency, as it were. But you know, I run into customers pretty regularly. We obviously sell networking software, so we work with people that actually build infrastructure. And we'll have customers that actually use a hybrid approach to a SaaS business. Sometimes they'll be bringing on a new customer or a new set of products, and they'll onboard all of that in public cloud because they don't know how successful it will be. They don't know how the, an application might scale or a service might scale. They'll use public cloud for, to onboard the process. Once they get their head wrapped around it, then they go and build private infrastructure to support it more cost effectively and at higher scale long term. And so you see these really smart strategic use of all the infrastructure options being leveraged kind of across all the companies. And actually, I would say some of the SaaS companies are of the more creative that I've seen in figuring out how to do workload migration. So in terms of what you're just talking about now, are there any more aspects as to why people specifically choose public versus private or uh, private versus public? In the early days of cloud, or even actually, I'd say over the last 10 years or so, there was a tendency for people to do things the way we used to do them. So if a company had been around for a while and they had built a lot of private infrastructure, oftentimes they would decide, hey, we're going to continue down that path and build private cloud. And as IT becomes more important in almost every business today, and you know the businesses start to evaluate their their kind of cost, their data security models, and their scale, it's forcing them to sit back and really make, like I said, kind of more crisp decisions about where a particular workload is going to live. The smaller workloads, you know, again, like we talked about, like a, a website or even an email server, you know, the, that's another great example. You have a lot of choices that you can leverage for an email server. You can run it on site, on-prem. You can go to a smaller service like a DreamHost or a DigitalOcean who will run an email server for you. Or you can use like the Google Doc Suite and use Gmail or Microsoft 365 and use a much higher scale email solution. You have the ability to choose public, private, SaaS, you know, all of those possibilities for your email. Data privacy, the tooling that you get, how you want to integrate that email service with the rest of your business end up defining which solution you take. But like I said, the thing that's becoming more and more crisp today is people don't go straight back to the toolbox that they know. They go back and, and think through all that list of reasons before they pick their solution. So people are more than happy at points to allow their data to sit in a public cloud uh, because for them, the logic is 
you'll have people from all over the world protecting your data as opposed to having to manage a specific team or person that will have to look after, say, a private cloud. What reasons do you find that people are moving from public to private specifically? It's interesting you say that. There's a little known characteristic. I think I started to open up the conversation with this in that, yes, your data is protected from outside intrusion if you use a public cloud or is supposed to be protected from, from public you know, intrusion or outside intrusion. You know, breaches occur in all cases. And as you can imagine, the cost benefit analysis of a massive breach at a public cloud provider makes it so that you can find one small entry into that thing and mine a tremendous amount of data. So it can be extremely valuable. And then also some of the public cloud providers actually mine the data that exists at rest for their own purposes. So people that are data sensitive will tend to manage their own security solutions for data at rest. And those security solutions work equally well, whether they're in the public cloud or the private cloud. Things like encrypting data at rest, doing authentication of endpoints during API calls, All of those tools are available no matter where your infrastructure is built. And people that truly care about data privacy, you know, it behooves them to always leverage that, you know, kind of overlay on top of the infrastructure. Um, We see more of is it really turns into cost and competition. It ends up that if you have a business where IT is a reasonably high cost and you decide that you're going to manage your cost and try and operationalize at the same you know, cost effectiveness as a public cloud provider, it's totally possible given today's technology. So people with that level of you know, discipline and hunger are able to build up you know, solution, on-prem solutions that are more cost effective and more dynamic than the public cloud is. And we see people doing it very regularly all the time. You can see the cost up to half of what you can get from public cloud. And that's tremendous if IT starts to show up you know, on your balance sheet. Um, The other reason we see people looking at public versus private cloud is competition. You know, as the public cloud providers start adding more and more fully integrated application services to their portfolio, they end up competing with the people that are leveraging their public cloud infrastructure, which then makes it really hard. You know, let's use a super obvious example of a retailer. You know, if I am an online retailer and I'm leveraging Amazon infrastructure for all of my IT needs, I'm paying Amazon to host this infrastructure as well as competing with Amazon who's providing the same retail services that I'm providing. You start to take a lot of your coffers and feeding your competitors and it gets to be a pretty circular exercise. I mean, it's easy to think about it nicely if you're thinking of yourselves as an online retailer of some niche service or niche set of products. But imagine if you're Target or Walmart or Home Depot really, really hard to decide that Amazon is where you want to run your infrastructure. See, that's extremely well argued because no matter whether your business solution is a general one or even a very unique one, either way, what ends up happening with the cloud is, like you said, you you have no idea where that data is going and you don't know what the public cloud providers are capable of doing with the data you store there. So it makes sense to protect a certain amount of data that is either going to feed a lot of companies really well or feed new startups that are looking at your unique business solution to try and monetize off that. So when people decide to then build a private cloud for those kinds of needs, what do they need to consider? The biggest issues that we see people kind of confronting is setting in place their operational metrics. You know, when you 
decide to build private infrastructure, the people that we see doing it super well and super successfully have a goal around, you know, cost, not just capital cost, but operational cost as it is expended over time. And they drive themselves to be very effective and they compare that overall cost and efficiency to other people hosting infrastructure. So it's less about, hey, we're going to do a private cloud, let's go hire eight people and you know, start this whole exercise. It's more of, hey, if we're going to build our own thing, this is what we should, it should cost us. This is how effective it should be. This is what our organization should look like to be effective. These are the areas that we need to you know, host and locate our services. So they're really thinking it through a lot better. One of the trends that you start to notice that is aligned with that is in the good old days, which was really not that long ago, if you were a moderate-sized enterprise, you would have an internal data center in one of your facilities where you hosted all of your servers and ran all your applications. Very rare that that occurs anymore. More often than not now, corporations will put their IT infrastructure in a co-location facility. And it's interesting because it gives you some of the advantages you would have gotten from public cloud. Back in those old days, if I had my building and I wanted to host my IT services there, I had to have redundant power and battery backup and fire system and cooling systems and raised floors and all this stuff to host my IT infrastructure. If I go to a co-location facility, all of that technology exists and it's being shared by a whole bunch of other people. No data involvement whatsoever. It's just, you know, so there's no cross-mingling of data or server resources or anything else. But a lot of the base infrastructure necessary to stand up, you know, IT is available and usable. In addition, it's internet accessible. So from these colos, you can get to anywhere in the world. So now you've taken what used to be on your campus and you've effectively globalized it just by moving where you located the service. So we're seeing people go through that whole set of decisions. What's my organization look like? What is my efficiency model? Where do I locate this? How do I connect it to the rest of the world? And how do my users get access to it? And so a lot of the same decisions people make, but they're doing it with a lot more you know, insight and forethought because of all the other options that are available. That makes perfect sense. And I'd love to pick your brain a little more on that, but uh, I'm afraid we're running out of time at the moment. So it's been a very enlightening conversation, and I feel more than ever now that the, the argument's been quite well made for the case. So I think we're going to stop there. Thank you so much, JR, for uh, coming into the podcast and uh, giving us some of your expertise. It's been really great having you on here. Thanks, Thomas. Appreciate it. It's always awesome to speak with you, and hopefully we've been able to articulate what we're seeing across our customer base in the industry right now. I hope that no matter who the customer is, they make the right choice. Absolutely. Right. Well, thank you. And thank you to the listener for listening. For more podcasts like this, visit em360tech.com and have a good day. For more podcasts like this, head to em360tech.com. Pour avoir un site bien conçu et bien référencé, il y a ceux qui galèrent bien. Et puis il y a les autres, ceux qui veulent créer eux-mêmes leur site facilement et ceux qui préfèrent ne rien faire. Pour eux, Yonos s'occupe de tout. Ce qui est sûr, c'est qu'avec Yonos, on peut toujours faire appel à son conseiller personnel, comme s'il était dans le bureau d'à côté. À choisir, vous préférez quoi Un tuto ou un conseiller que vous finirez par tutoyer À bientôt sur Yonos. 
ionos.fr slash podcast. Bonne écoute.